The reading today is Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thanks so much, Tim. Friends, if you haven't got Psalm 90 uh, open in front of you, can I invite you, in fact, I'll grab this one, can I invite you to pull up a, a version on your phone or something like that that you might be able to uh, see as we track our way through this. And I don't know if it stood out for you, but Psalm 90 actually has some pretty bold requests, doesn't it? Make us glad. Satisfy us. Establish the work of our hands. There's some pretty deep desires conveyed in the middle of all of that. And I wonder what the things are that you long for in life, like the really deep desires in life. Not just something you're hoping for the next week or the next year. But at the end of all things, you'd be able to say, yes. I think for many of us, we've got pretty confused relationships with our really deepest desires, don't we? For some of us, we're actually a little bit embarrassed about them, feeling like they're somehow a little inappropriate. For others, we might have this sneaking suspicion that God doesn't really want to give us those things that we so deeply desire. Well, we're going to spend a few minutes unpacking this prayer and considering what it would look like for us to get on our knees before God with the same kind of raw honesty that's set out for us here, with the same kind of, kind of deep yearning, really laying it before God and reflecting on who he is, the one that we are laying it before. You see, this psalm that we're looking at, it falls into two sections. Um, from verse 1 to 11, we read about fragile creatures and the eternal God. And then from verses 12 through 17, we learn how fragile creatures pray. As I've spent time wrestling with this psalm over the last few weeks, I've thought, gosh, 
I reckon we could spend weeks in this. There is so much. But in fact, we're actually just going to have a fairly brief look at it today because we're allowing some time for Q&A afterwards. So if there's questions that come out of our time now, feel free to stick your hand up and raise them uh, in a little while. Or it might just be prompting broader questions. That's absolutely fine. Because we're going to have a look at this passage, reflect on how, uh, it, what it means for us to pray like this through Jesus. So as we begin, I wonder how you approach God when you pray. Like, what are the words that you actually say when you start praying? Dear God? Loving Heavenly Father? I wonder how many of us begin with anything like the first 11 verses of this psalm. Because all 11 verses, that's really what it is. It's the equivalent of saying, dear God. Actually, it's a pretty powerful way of putting our prayers into context with the relationship that we have with the mighty God who created all things. I don't know whether you notice, but if you cast your eye back over those first um, verses, um, it's actually an incredibly humble expression of what it means to, to come before God. You can almost feel the, the reverent fear of the Lord. There's a, there's a theme that we've been unpacking over recent weeks. You can, you can almost feel the, the, the fear of the Lord oozing out of every verse. In verses 1 and 2, we, we see that this prayer recognises that it comes to God who is in the context of a very big history, one that's bigger than any individual. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. But God's history is even bigger than the history of his people. It stretches beyond the generations of Israel to the generations of the planet. Before creation itself, verse 2, before the mountains were born, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's, that's the, the first kind of dear God moment. You are the God who is before and after everything else. God's bigness that stretches over all of time. And it's very quick to point out the contrast. In contrast to God's eternity, we're just a blink of an eye. We are dust, verse 3. Sons of Adam, the one taken from the dust. We are as brief as the day, verse 6. We're like grass that springs up in the morning and is dry and withered in the evening. And friends, I think it's, it's, it's lovely to see this prayer because it names what we actually all know, but don't like to admit that we're fragile. Have you ever reflected on how so much of our economy is actually driven by the simple fact that we are fragile? We have cosmetic and beauty industries that try to hide the impact of ageing because we're fragile. We have health industries that seek to push back the tide of death because we're fragile. And even the tourism industry, I'm convinced, is there to try and convince us of, of all of the great experiences that we need to have before it's too late because... We're fragile, even if we're reluctant to name it. It's the truth that we all know. And so the great privilege of this prayer, this dear God moment, is that we can actually come before the God who is eternal. We're as brief as a day, yet for him a thousand years are like a day. He is very big, we are very small, and in prayer we get to turn to him, ask him to use his bigness, to care for our smallness. But actually, Moses, as he approaches God in this psalm, he still hasn't finished his dear God. Because he's actually still reflecting on the contrast between who God is and who we are. Who we are. Not, just, not just because he's big and we're small. As verses 7 to 11 unpack, 
the fragility that we experience is not actually how things should be. It's a consequence of our shared human rejection of God, the one who rules over all things. That's how this psalm addresses God. If you look closely, um, depending on the translation that you have before you, uh, verse 1 and 17, all of our Bibles will show, address God as Lord, just in regular font. But for most of our English translations, when you see Lord in verse 13, it'll put it in funny little capitals. Because at that point, Lord in the middle is, using, is addressing God by his personal name. Yahweh, you might have heard that if you've been around churches for a while. In the Hebrew, Yahweh, his personal name. It's the name that God approached Moses with at the burning bush and said, this is who I am, the God of your forefathers. Well, Moses approached God or called out to God in verse 13 by that personal name. But booking in this psalm, he, he calls him Lord in ordinary font for us, using a different word entirely. It's, it's just a title, master, ruler. Lord. You see, the point is, the verses 7 to 11, as, as Moses comes before God in prayer, as he says, dear God, he acknowledges that we've not honoured God as the Lord that he is. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know it too. And we know that he knows it. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's a pretty powerful statement of our situation, that when we come before the eternal God in prayer, we come as those whose ways are known to him, who don't deserve to have an audience with him. And yet, wow, this prayer comes. Like it, it still approaches this God so boldly. From verses 12 through 17, we have six incredibly bold requests for fragile creatures to bring before their eternal Lord. And they're worth walking through one by one. Joel, I've got these spaced out for us, a couple of slides in if you don't mind pulling them up. Because we're going to have a look at how this prayer of Moses teaches us to pray. See, I think if you skip through a couple here for us, Fragile creatures praying to the eternal uh, God, we, we come as finite creatures in verse 7. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think in many ways this is actually just the most natural thing to ask. If we've just acknowledged that God is the eternal God and we are such fragile people, it's simply asking to see that reality more clearly, to see God as God, to see ourselves as his finite creatures. Now, I don't know about you, but this might not be up there on your list of deepest longings. But it is surely right at the top of one of the wisest things that we could pray. To see God as God and, and we as we are. For one thing, it would help us avoid that fu foolish futility of trying to escape our mortality. Now, more than that, though, being put in our place means that we don't overestimate ourselves and underestimate God. But I think the wisdom, if we took the time to reflect on it and as I said we could spend lots of time unpacking each of these but being putting our, in our place also means that we want to we want to make the most of our days to number them rightly knowing that they're limited and and precious they're not to be wasted as Psalm 12 says this is 
the heart of wisdom, the beginning of real wisdom. What a great starting point for prayer. God, help us to see our finite lives from your eternal, infinite perspective. What else do we learn about praying from this psalm? Second, verse 13, that we are praying as fragile creatures. Relent, Lord, verse 13, have compassion. If we ponder this prayer, we see this is, this is just a really deep, honest reflection that, that life is hard, but it's not out of God's control. In fact, it goes even a step further because it's asking the God who is in control to relent, to change the way that he is treating his people. Like we saw above, this is, this is where... This is where God is called by his personal name right here in verse 13. When we want God to change, how do we call out to him as Yahweh, as, as the God of the Bible, the one who's personally made himself known? It's an appeal to God's character as the one who told Moses at the burning bush that he'd made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he intended to keep them. God, life is hard. Will you change? In the midst of hardship, this prayer begs for compassion. As is often the case, uh, English author C.S. Lewis had a really wonderful way of summing this up. Can you put this quote up for us? Thanks, Joel. You're ahead of me already. In his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, it's uh, about 60 years old now, but just speaks so well into our time. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It, our pain, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Psalm 90 teaches us to pray as fragile creatures, acknowledging that, yes, I have finally heard you, God. I am finite and I need your compassion. That our pain, our hardship, our suffering, that's God's megaphone pleading with us to turn to him, not away from him. I wonder how passionately we get on our knees and beg of him for that compassion. Well, thirdly, Psalm 90 also teaches us, thanks Joel, to, to pray as thirsty creatures. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Now, if you wanted to put your finger on what is the deep longing for our kind of cultural moment, it's right there, surely. Satisfy us. I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I I desire. Satisfy us. What a bold prayer. I love that it just, just lays bare the things that we're feeling but often not willing to say to God. I mean... All of the classic songs are reflecting on it and they're classics, they've lasted because people want to keep hearing them when they're on the, the, you know, the tradies are there on the building site hammering and laying bricks, the rolling stones. I can't get no satisfaction. You too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And it turns out if you Google it, all the hip kids are listening to all sorts of, you know, up-to-date versions of those that I don't know. Loads of people that think being a Christian means you just have to suppress all your desires. God's not really interested in them. But here we see Moses described as the man of God begging for satisfaction. It's just that he knows where to look. Satisfy us, he says, with your unfailing love. You could just say, satisfy us with yourself, God. 
in contrast to all the fast food alternatives of life that are ultimately unsatisfying, God himself is from everlasting to everlasting. His love alone is unfailing. So as you turn to God for compassion, relief from hardship, will we, on this prayer, satisfy us with yourself? It's a challenge because I think, fourth, we pray this way because we are emotional creatures. Did you see what followed in verse 15? Make us glad. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. In some ways, this, this, this really powerful prayer in verse 15, it's just simply saying, make us glad because we've been sad. And it might sound a bit lame, but actually let's pause on that. God is teaching us to pray and he teaches us to cry out, make us glad, happy, delighted, joyful. The everlasting God knows that we are emotional creatures. He knows that we feel things. He cares that grief and sadness are real. And God gives us this prayer to teach us to get on our knees and pray what we're feeling. Make us glad, Lord. That's the level of concern that God has for you. He invites us to pray. Of all of the things that I think we tend to feel are just a bit inappropriate to ask God for, I reckon this is right up there. Make me glad. But it would be hollow if it was just give me that sense of happiness. Make life bliss. But actually to see how this sits in the context of this prayer, that we would be glad because we are satisfied in God. That was verse 14 before it. Verse 15 says, we want to be glad because we've seen trouble. And then verse 16 follows, I actually want to see something different. Not just the trouble that's right in front of me, but I want to see you, God, in what you've done and what you've like. That's where true happiness is found. Because, verse 16, we pray as worshipping creatures. Now, I wonder if you think of yourself as a worshipper. Hi, I'm Simon. I'm someone who worships. If you've been a Christian for a while, well, maybe yes. Maybe you've come to see that life, all of life, is an act of worship of Jesus. But if you're a new Christian or not a Christian, there's every chance that that is not a label that you would use to describe yourself, worshipper. But the contention of the Bible is that, indeed, we are all worshippers. The Bible says... The question of, are you a worshipper, is not actually a, a yes or no kind of question, but rather, who do you worship? What do you worship? Because we all worship. We all look to someone or something as a provider, a protector, a motivator, a satisfier. And the question is, what do you worship? So Psalm 90, verse 16, it grips those deep desires and it's teaching us to pray as worshipping creatures who need the goodness of God constantly in our view. God, make your deeds known, it prays. Show us your splendor. Will you get on your knees and ask that kind of deep, longing question? As a worshipping creature who's constantly drawn aside to all sorts of other interesting, shiny distractions, and say, no, God, 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 I need you in my vision so that I might see you find my satisfaction in you 
and know the deep gladness and joy that you want from me. I feel like as I've spent the time working through and, and just reflecting on and praying over this psalm, I just feel like it's big, bold prayers. The sorts of things that are, if I'm honest, closest to my heart and yet hardest to implement. What does it look like to pray this when the kids are bouncing off the wall and I'm losing my temper? What does it look like when life is just mundane or sickness just seems to be recurring to genuinely pray these prayers? And then verse 17, I think we should be blown away because verse 17, God teaches us that we get to pray as creative creatures. Verse 17, as we said with the kids, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In our terms today, I think we'd say something simple, like just make my life count for something, God. I think every person on the planet longs for significance. You long for your life to count for something. I know I do. But who am I to come before the Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the ruler and master of it all, and ask that I would count for something, that I would do anything of significance? You remember that's pretty much the same question that Moses asked when he was sent by God to speak to Pharaoh. Who am I? He said, do you remember God's answer? I will be with you. Not about you. I will be with you. God effectively says... It's about me. And Moses knows that the work of his hands, it would come to nothing if it was only his hands at work. But with God at work through him, well, then the insignificant, that becomes history making. That's the book of Exodus. Lord, establish the work of our hands. Every person on the planet longs for significance. And God knows it because he made it that way. He made us to be his agents in the universe, participating in his rule over all things. And so he wants us to pray this really bold prayer. Make my life count for something, something that lasts, something solid and enduring, even more than that bricks and mortar of my house that, let's be honest, the next guy that buys it will knock it over and put something even fancier on the block. What an incredibly big, bold prayer for small, fragile, sinful creatures to pray. And yet I think we should be asking, where is Jesus in all of this? I haven't even had him mentioned yet. Well, as with all of the Psalms, this Psalm isn't aiming to be a complete theology of suffering and blessing, or even a complete model of prayer. For one thing... I think there is quite intentionally a massive hole between verse 11 and verse 12. I think we are meant to feel the gap between the context of this prayer, you know, the dear God that I said went on for 11 verses, and then the request of this prayer from verse 12. How could such an everlasting creator of the universe allow such fragile creatures to possibly make such incredibly bold requests? How can it be? Now we're, we're kind of hitting pause on our way through the book of Exodus and Exodus teaches us that Moses and then through him the people of Israel knew that only the grace of God could bridge that gap, allow the, the glory of God to dwell amongst his people for them to approach him. 
And as the story of the Bible unfolds, we come to see that the giant hole between verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 90 is actually, it's a Jesus-shaped hole. We know that Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to say with Moses in verse 7 of Psalm 90, we are consumed by your anger because verse 8, you know our secret sins, and yet we can still pray these bold prayers. Show us compassion, satisfy us, make us glad, make our lives stand for something. We can ask all of that because Jesus stands in the gap. Jesus takes our sin and removes our shame as rebellious servants. He offers us forgiveness and and he gives us this privileged position as a child of our Heavenly Father. We We can call out to Lord, the ruler and the master, as Dad. And Jesus is right at the heart of Psalm 90, bridging the gap between verse 11 and 12. But actually Jesus is also there from beginning to end. Because as the Bible teaches us, he is the image of the invisible God. He is God himself made flesh. So when we pray, relent, Lord, have compassion, we're asking for the compassion of Jesus. When we pray, satisfy us with your unfailing love, we are saying, Lord, I need to know more of the love that you have shown me in Jesus, that I might learn to be satisfied with it, because it is truly rich and overflowing. And when we pray, establish the work of our hands. May my life significant. May it count for something. We're asking Jesus to take his hand and, and to put it over our hand and, and to move our hands in the way that he would move them on, on the things that he is at work on so that we might participate in the enduring work that he's doing in our lives and in our world because his kingdom will endure That's the boldness of praying Psalm 90. I want to encourage you, what would it look like to to rewrite those six requests from verse 12 to 17 and and post them around your house and and just allow your deepest longings to be poured out before God? Teach me to see myself as you are. Establish the work of my hands. Make me glad, Lord. Satisfy me. Fragile creatures coming before the everlasting God. Now, friends, in many ways, if you're checking Jesus out for the first time, or you've been walking with him for years, I think this is a prayer that sums up what it means to be a Christian. It's actually a prayer that I want to keep getting better at praying. So as we finish, I'm going to invite the band to come forward. Come on up, guys. Come on up. We're going to sing a song that helps us to reflect on how Jesus stands in that gap. But I want to finish, as they're coming on up, with a very simple prayer. It's not quite as old as Psalm 90, but nearly. Uh, It's a little over 500 years old, coming to us from the Book of Common Prayer. It was first written in 16th century England. It's a prayer for the end of the day. Thanks, Joel. You've whacked it up for us. Uh, Compline is the old language, evening prayer. Hence, it's the kind of prayer that you would pray as you were heading to bed. Here we are on a Sunday morning though. And I think it's a prayer that speaks so clearly into our anxious, fragile, longing times. I want to invite you to pray these words with me. 
We'll finish with that and then stand together to sing. Will you join me? Be present, merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this fleeting world may rest in your eternal changelessness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.